Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to just start by telling you a story. Uh, the, these these talks are sort of like um, kind of like a, a spiritual journal. So so I like to record these things, and I don't know what you'll make of it, but but it's just uh, it's just uh, good to get it out. So I have, I have a dear friend who I, I correspond with uh, by email every once in a while, every few months or so over a period of years. We've actually never met in person, and. And then when we do correspond, it's mostly about life things and never, never about, say, a specific Torah question, Rare, rarely. Um, I, nothing I can remember, actually. And then just, um, I got this email last week uh, with a very specific Torah question, which was sort of like different from all of our other back and forths. And uh, he wanted to know about a particular verse in the Torah about where the birth of Yaakov. Yaakov is born, and he's born holding on to the heel of Avesav, of his twin brother. So I think, now, we're several books away from, from, from that section of the Torah. We're like, you know, that's, that's, that's in a completely different part of the Torah. Not that that matters, but it's not, it's not just sort of the topic of the day. So I think I, I, I shared one thing, but um, but but uh, he was looking for me to point him to a, an area where, where, this, where this is explained more fully, and I didn't really have any ideas uh, at the moment. Um, anyway, the next, the next day, the next day, I was, it was after, it was Friday night, it was Shabbos, I was, I was about to go to sleep, I was actually exhausted, I had already fallen asleep on a chair, <laughs> and so I sort of climbed my way into my pajamas, and... and uh, was about to go to bed, and then I just heard a, just had a thought. I don't want to say I heard a voice in my head. That sounds more mystical than what this was. <laughs> but I, I had a thought. Let's just put it that way. And it was unusual because it, it, this was the thought. Three words. The Bear Mayim Chaim. So he's a, a great Torah commentator, one of the great Hasidic masters. And it was sort of unusual for me to think that because... I actually haven't read the commentary. I haven't learned it. Um, I, I, no one was talking about him. I hadn't been thinking about him. And so this was so out of the blue that I decided that I felt like I should take it seriously. The Bermayim Chaim, by the way, is, is um, it's the name of a book. A, a lot of great Rebbe's, just so you know, are named after their books. They're called after their books. So when we refer to them, we actually refer to them by the name of their book, which is very interesting. Like, for instance... Some people are surprised to find out that the Chovitz Chaim was not his name. That was that was actually the name of his book. So so uh, so there are many many examples of this in Torah, and I'll give you one of my favorite examples actually, which is um, there's a uh, I'm, I'm trying to think who it was. I, sadly, I don't remember in the moment, but um, but they were they were heading toward Israel. This was like at the beginning of the establishment of the state of Israel. There was a bunch of yeshiva students, and and they came up to this this great rav who was you know you know there, and and all the students you know it had been such a long journey and the war and everything like that. They they were looking like looking toward Israel, like when are we going to see the the, the landmass, you know, and um, and and uh, with such great expectations, and so so. They asked the Rebbe, like, they thought they saw Israel. They said, where are we? Thinking that what they saw was Israel. And he says, I don't know where you are, 
But he looked down in the book, he said, I'm in Baba Metziah. You know what I mean? So, so the idea that you could be, or wherever he was, whatever the page of the book was, but, but, but the idea that you're living in the book, right? You're living in the Torah. So with that in mind, um, I had the, the privilege of, 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 of being by the, the, the Belzer Rebbe a couple of times. And the, the Belzer community, the main street of the Belzer community in Israel is called Dover Shalom. Dover Shalom is actually the name of the book of the first Belzer Rebbe. So in other words, where do they live? They live in Dover Shalom. They live in the book of the Belzer Rebbe. Do you understand? That's the name of the street. It's a very, just if you think about that, it's a, it's a kind of a mind-expanding concept. Like... You get to choose where you live. Um, so I thought to myself, okay, the, the Ber Mayim Chayim, right? So if I'm thinking about him, I should learn a Torah by him. So again, I was like, just, you know, just ready to crawl into bed. But I just thought, all right, well, I, I have this book. It's an anthology of Hasidic masters. I think it's called Hasidic masters. <laughs> um, and I know they have a little chapter on the Ber Mayim Chaim, you know, just, which is a large book, by the way. And this was just, I think I counted them, like eight small, one-paragraph little snippets from it. But I go and I, I look up the Ber Mayim Chaim in this book, and I see one of the little snippets is addressing the question, what does it mean that Yaakov was holding on to the heel of Asaph? Right? Which was the question that I'd been asked the day before and and there was and there was a there was an answer and um it was an interesting answer and i thought okay so after shabbos i i figured let me email what what i found to 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 my friend and uh you know who knows maybe it will be meaningful to him so i i wrote him and then he writes back right away this is amazing with like five exclamation points he says, that Friday night when this happened, now the Ber Mayim Chaim, that, that's, in, that's Hebrew. That means the well of living waters. Of course, Torah is compared with water. So, so the well of living waters is what he named his book. Um, so he said that my wife and I, my wife was having trouble sleeping that night, and she took out a book, and she was learning from a book that night called The Well of Living Waters. Yeah. So, so, so what do you, what do you, what do you make of that story? I mean, it's like, what it says to me is what, what, uh, a, a refrain, anyone who spent any time around Reb Shlomo over, over, over the years was really blessed to hear him say this probably dozens of times. Just, he would say, just, what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? And, and this is, this is now getting into really the type of things that I want to share today. And, and the point is, is that there, there's, so many, there's, so many, there's so many questions that we have to address. One of them is, is how linear is life? See, I, I once heard Reb Shlomo say this, and it made a giant impression on me. He says, the, basically, 
the world is deeper than a 1 plus 1 equals 2 equation. The world doesn't really work on this level. 1 plus 1 equals 2. And we're hardwired. Our rational minds are hardwired to approach life in this rational, linear way. Such that when real life constantly surprises us or defies us or we feel mocks us or, or whatever it is or disappoints us maybe more profoundly, right? That, that somehow we think that life is wrong. But life got it wrong. I, I get it. I understand it. And how did life get it wrong? You know, I'll tell you something. When I was a little boy, this will give you a little insight into me. And I think I was, I don't know, maybe five years old, right? I remember, I actually can picture this, which was that I, I'd, I had something to say. I don't know what it is. And I had, like, <laughs> this is actually, it sounds like a portrait of a, 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 a little madman, you know? <laughs> I had, like, a little rocking chair in my room. <laughs> I, you know, and... I remember getting up out of this rocking chair and I, I had had a thought and I, I had no idea what the thought was. And I walked into the kitchen and my parents had some friends over. So here you have a table full of adults, you know, thank you. And, um, and I, I, I walked into the room and I spread out my hands and I said, silence, right? Like everyone should pay attention to whatever it is I had to say. And then I remember saying whatever it was, and I had no idea what it was. And then I looked at the blank looks <laughs> on their face and said, no idea what I was saying. I don't know if I had any idea what I was saying, by the way. But here's the point. I remember stomping back into my room, saying to myself in a very heated way, they don't get it. They just don't get it. They don't follow. What? I, don't. I was clear. It was not. The issue was not with me. <laughs> you know? So... <laughs> And I was like, I was a child. I was a child, you know? Um, so, so I think on some level that's all of us. We have this very linear, rational view of the way the world should work, ought to work, which is this one plus one equals two way, and we're constantly shocked when, when, when real life defies our expectations. You know, the... the the rabbis make a very beautiful point, and again, it's, they, they phrase it so simply and beautifully, but it's so profound, you know, which is that they say, there, there are many examples of this, the, this technique that they use, where they say, man is not like God, and then they give an example. There are many versions of this. One of the versions that they give is, man is not like God. Why? Because when, when we print something, like when we make something, like a coin, for instance, you stamp out a coin, and every single coin looks like the previous coin. But when God makes people, every face is different. <laughs> Which is awesome, right? God is endlessly, endlessly, endlessly creative. So on this, Akatsuka Rebbe says something fantastic, as usual. He says, you know, you're not surprised when you meet someone who doesn't look like you. So why are you surprised when you meet someone who doesn't think like you? <laughs> right? So we're constantly meeting life. We're constantly encountering life. And we're constantly shocked 
that life has a different has a different opinion than us. So it goes back to this this phrase that that Reb Shlomo captured this so so wonderfully in this idea that that life is deeper than a one plus one equals two way, you know, and and you have to you're at a fork in the road when you consider that, which is that life truly is logical and smooth. But just everyone is just so messed up. So if everyone just got their acts together, then things would perceive smoothly, right? So like, for instance, a lot of people, especially people who sort of um, align themselves with the more sort of like liberal, quote unquote, philosophy, whatever that means, question, I think, the presence of evil in the world. It feels as though people are, for the most part, profoundly troubled or misunderstood or afflicted or oppressed. And if people were just sort of treated better, then everyone would get along. That this idea that there's some sort of X factor called evil in the world is, is not really the case. Is not really the case. So that's, that's one approach. That's one approach. The other approach is to say... You know something? The world is just more profound than we are. God is more profound than we are. God has plans for us that we'll just, we're never going to fathom. We're never going to fully know it. We're never going to know as much as God knows. And therefore, life will always surprise us. So, so this is a choice that, that a person can make. And, and a person can decide See, I think one of the things that I really want to try to get across and I really want to emphasize, I don't know if you've ever had this conversation before. Many of us had, have. I know I have, which is, um, I remember my dad used to say to me uh, every once in a while, you know, like, he himself was very spiritual, but he would never really describe himself that way. Um, and... And, and he would say, you know, I wish that I had belief like you had belief. Right? He would, he would often say that. And I think a lot of us have heard that in our, in, in our lives. And I think that that comes from, in my opinion, a, a mistaken notion that belief is something that you either have or you don't have. Right? And what I think is that I think some people are, have a more spiritual inclination than other people. I think that's definitely true. But when it comes down to actual belief, I think that that's a choice that a person can make. You can decide whether you want to believe or not. Now, some people might be sort of like shocked by that because they feel they equate belief with a willing ignorance like, why would I want to arrest my, my rational mind? That's the only thing I have going for me. Except, if you've been paying attention to what I said initially, that the rational mind is constantly upset. <laughs> and constantly dashed in terms of its expectations. 
So if there is a brick wall that rationality hits, why do you feel as though I'm putting all my chips on rationality? So what is the alternative? So what I would suggest is, you see, people say, okay, the, 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 what is belief? Well, if it's not rationality, belief must be, you ready? Irrationality. But that's incorrect. Because belief is not rationality, it is super rationality. It is that level which transcends the rational. You see, we've put it a lot of different ways. You know, there's the, there's the, the famous parable, I think Aesop's fables or something like that, which is the race between the rabbit and the hare. Right? So you know the, the wait, the rabbit is the hare. The rabbit and the tortoise. <laughs> the rabbit and the hare, that sounds like a good race. I'd like to know who would win that, you know? Two rabbits. <laughs> um, so, so you have the, ra- the tortoise and the hare. That's it, the tortoise and the hare. So the tortoise moves very slowly, very, very slowly, and the rabbit, fast, right? So in, in a race between those two things, okay, obviously the rabbit's going to win. But the surprise of this story is that slow and steady wins the race. That, that the rabbit eventually gets tired, or I, I don't know, I haven't read this thing in years, or the rabbit gets distracted. I don't know what happens to the rabbit, honestly. But the rabbit does not win the race in this, in this, in this parable. Slow and steady wins the race, right? Which is a little counterintuitive. Because on the, on the face of it, the rabbit should win every single time. So... The reason why I'm bringing that out is because I want to hold on to this idea of the rational and the super-rational. The rational and that which is beyond, transcends the rational. Not irrational, but beyond rational. And I want to say that that's the mind and the heart. Right? The mind is like the rabbit. The mind works fast, 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 fast. And can, you know, put people on the moon and, you know, see subatomic particles and, you know, solve fast mysteries, right? So, you know, you put like, okay, where am I going to put my chips? Putting it on the mind, right? But the heart actually sees further than the mind. Because the heart is somehow... See, I'll tell you a big secret, okay? Reb Tzadok talks about this. Um, I... I I, I saw an allusion to this in Reb Hananiel's explanation of the four people go into the orchard, all right? This, these are asides, this is more advanced stuff, but the bottom line is, is that there's a portal. You ready for this? There is a portal in your heart that goes into heaven. See, we're talking about like advanced map making right now, okay? But real maps, real maps. There's an actual entrance into heaven. And I'm not talking about heaven in the abstract way. I'm talking about there's a place called heaven, right? And there's an entrance to heaven through the heart. 
And a person can see farther in that way than what the mind will take them. The person can enter into this realm of the super-rational in this way. Now, this is tricky business, by the way, because the heart is kind of an unstable compound, right? The heart can also lead a person astray. That's when, that's, those are desires, right? This, this, is, this, this is why if a person is able to cleanse their heart, then all of a sudden they, they start to get superpowers, basically. You know, not, not like in the Marvel Comics sense, but, you know, in like the, the tzaddik sense, right? They begin to see further. But a person has to cleanse their heart. And, and, and cleansing their heart means that you make God's will your will. If you can make God's will your will, that's the, that's the pathway for the cleansing of the heart. So, so one of the ways to cleanse your heart is to understand that you're never going to have everything. And this is, um, this, this is important for people to understand. Because you have to, you, you need to be realistic, right? Like I always think like, um, I always imagine someone goes into an Italian restaurant, a fine Italian restaurant, and the waiter comes and they order sushi. And the waiter says, you know, we don't serve su- sushi. And then you say, what kind of Italian restaurant is this? A lousy restaurant. You got so many fancy reviews. I don't get it. That's because you don't know where you are. You have to know where you are. The wise person knows where they are. A wise person understands that a hammer is not a peanut. Right? You you have to understand... and. And if you want to live a fulfilled life, you have to know who you are and what the limitations are in terms of your own existence. Because otherwise, you're constantly approaching your life and your desires with unreal expectations. And then that can only lead to disappointment and depression and disbelief. So we need a very grounded sense of who and what we are. And one of the axioms, one of the, 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 the laws of just being a human being, the rabbis bring this down, is that a person doesn't accomplish half the things that they want to in life. Now, don't mislearn what I'm saying. That doesn't mean, therefore, don't be ambitious. No, you have to be ambitious. Therefore, don't work hard because I'm not going to get it anyway. How do you know you're not going to get it? But you have to balance both of those things in your head at the same time. You see, this is what we call, if you want to get fancy, this is the great, one of the great dialectics of Judaism, which is Judaism, which is Torah, which is you're walking on a tightrope, and both sides are true simultaneously. And you have to understand how to balance both of these things at the same time. 
and use it as a strength and not as a weakness. Not to talk yourself out of something because you say, well, you don't get half the things you want anyway because then that's laziness. That's not wisdom. You see, that's a, that's a misuse of Torah at that point. Now, how do, you, how do you balance these contradictory things all the time? So you have to stay in Torah learning and you, ha- and you have to have a Rebbe. Or you have to have good friends who you can discuss things with so that you don't tell yourself the wrong thing under the guise of telling yourself the right thing. You see, I'll give you an example of this. Many people, many people say, you know what? I'm going to have a muna. I'm going to have belief. And you know what their heart is really saying? I'm sick of working. I'm tired. I'm lazy. I'm not going to do it anymore. But they dress it up in a fancy outfit and they call it belief. Now all of a sudden they're not being lazy, they're being religious. It's trafe. It's garbage. But you, this is what I'm saying. Like, if you want to cleanse your heart, right? Part of cleansing your heart means having someone who is over you. Right? Because if you make yourself into the final authority, it's, you know, you know I'm going to make a prediction. There's a brick wall heading for you soon. <laughs> Good luck. So, so you've got to walk this path. You've got to walk this path. And, um, and you have to use, so, so what do we do with this teaching then? What, what do we do with this teaching then? What do we do with this teaching then? That you're not going to have half the things. That a person doesn't doesn't die with half of their desires fulfilled. What what do we do with a teaching like that? Okay, so I want to give you what uh, kind of a, a a true story, a funny story that I read one time for, for when Rabbi Riskin was uh, young. He was he was he had a a, a teacher in, in yeshiva, and the and, and the teacher said, "Who has more money? Who's richer, a person with ten dollars or a person with five dollars?" Right? So Rabbi Riskin, even in his youth, was smart enough to know that that was a trick question, but he didn't know, like, how is it a trick question? Like, you know? So, so, the, so, the, so all the students said, you know, the person with $10 is richer than the person with $5. And the Rebbe says back, no, the person with $5 is richer. Why? Because everyone wants twice what they have. So the person who has $10 is in debt $10, whereas the person who only has $5 is only in debt $5. So the guy who has $5 is richer than the guy who has $10. So so there's a sort of a more humorous sort of like depiction of this theory. But I want to say the following. How do you deal with in a Torah way now? What's What's the Torah way where we benefit and where we achieve and where we're we're richer for knowing that we don't get everything. Right? And and I'm going to suggest an answer for you right now. 
You see, and, and you should know that all of this is inspired by, by our discussion of Korach. See, Korach, this is, a, this, is a, this is one of the most modern Parshas in the Torah. You know, I mean, all the, the Torah is forever, and it's all talking to us every single day. But Korach especially. Korach is answering or posing the following question. You ready? What do you do when you have everything in life except what you want? <laughs> <laughs> and in our modern day, where, like, I'm telling you, I shared with this, this with you a while ago. A, a few Saturday nights ago, I walked into Ralph's. And Ralph's, if you don't know, is like one of the big uh, supermarkets here. It's a big supermarket chain here in, in California. And I'm telling you, I grew up on the Upper West Side in New York. And it's like the, the supermarkets, the aisles, like you could barely fit one shopping cart, like down an aisle. Like, God forbid someone should be coming in the opposite direction. You know what I mean? It's like a... Like, it's that, that, that's where I grew up. I walk into the supermarkets here in Los Angeles, and they're like golf courses. I mean, seriously, they're like, it's like, it's like you want to roller skate down, you know, just like, spend the day, you know, like, bring a blanket, we'll set it up in aisle five, you know, by the cookies, and just, we'll spend the day, it'll be nice. You know, it's, it's literally, it's like a vacation spot. So... I walked in and, and I, I, I saw like vast storehouses of food. And all of it, like each item doesn't really cost more than a few dollars. And I'm talking about one item, right? So I walked in and I just, I stopped and I thought to myself, kings, ancient kings did not have what's available. And I can buy anything in this entire store. Anything in this entire store I can, I can afford. Kings. Did, I'm talking about kings who raised armies and who killed hundreds or thousands of people didn't have what any person has today walking into a supermarket. A friend of mine arrived from Russia. Um, this is, you know, right after the collapse of the, the, the Soviet um, tyranny. And um, sometime he was in America already for a few years. And then his, I guess his father or something like that came over. And his father walked into a, a Best Buy, like an electronics store, right? He walked in and he started weeping. He, his son told me this story. The, the father walked into a Best Buy, looked around at all the TVs and everything like that, and he started weeping. So, again, what do you do when you have everything except what you want? <laughs> so, one of the things that I'm suggesting is that this is the human condition. In other words, welcome to life. There's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> this, is, this is everybody. This is everybody. Everybody is walking around in this way. It's just, you just substitute. What are you missing? I don't know. What are you missing? Wouldn't that be a great, instead of like being at a cocktail party or a singles party and asking, what do you do for a living? Right? Asking them, hi, my name is David. What are you missing in life? I'll tell you what I'm missing in life. You know? 
Like, that would be just like a, like a great icebreaker, you know? So, so everyone is... So again, I'm trying to make sure that you're ordering Italian food in the Italian restaurant. That's what, that's what I'm trying to do right now. <laughs> to understand where you are and who you are and what this realm that we inhabit is. Because there are certain rules to it. And if you don't read the rules, you're going to walk around scratching your head and being depressed and self-medicating and doing all sorts of things like that because you don't know what's going on. So, so let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you something very, very deep. One of my all-time favorite tours. So, when I heard this, it was, it was said in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe. And then later on, I went back to the person and I said, I asked him again. I said, you know, where exactly is that teaching? Because it was so awesome. He goes, and he said, no, I heard that from a guy in drug rehab <laughs> from, <laughs> with tattoos up and down his arms, Right. And to this day, I don't know if it's a better Torah coming from that source, honestly, you know? So here's the Torah. You ready? It says that every single person, and this is by design, right? This is by design from, from Hashem. Every person is born with a God-shaped hole inside of them. So... What I would compare that to, you have a God-shaped hole. So let me just describe that for a moment. You see, I think we've all had this experience where you're doing a jigsaw puzzle and you've got a patch of pieces that are like almost complete and it's just missing one piece. And if you put, you try to put one piece in, it's the wrong piece. You jam it in, it doesn't work. You try another piece, it's the wrong piece. You can't bang it in because it's, it's the wrong piece. Ah, and then you put in the right piece, and then it's good. So the God-shaped hole, you see, all of us understand, we sense intuitively that we're missing something. Everyone does. But people react to this in different ways. Everyone's trying to fill this God-shaped hole. But what are they filling it with? Oftentimes drugs, oftentimes sex, oftentimes food oftentimes money, oftentimes shopping, oftentimes career, internet, just endless mind-like numbing activities, all trying to plug this God-shaped hole. But, but, but what's the secret? Only God is, fits that hole. And God made us like this by design. And what I would compare it to is... A USB port. If, if you know what that is, that's that little slot in your computer that you, you plug the wire in, right? And then that connects you, you know, to greater places. That God-shaped hole is like a USB port right in the center of us where we get to connect to God. God gives us the point of connection. But he gives it to us, listen very carefully now, he gives us that opportunity to connect through the vehicle of longing. 
Let me say that again. He gives us that opportunity to connect with him by sensing that there's something missing and using that longing as the vehicle to which to connect to him. For, we, for us to intuitively understand that there's something more, that there's something greater out there. And then for us to say, oh, that's God. How can I connect with him? How can I serve him? How can I be one with him? And now we can put all these thoughts together, okay? So is God a sadist that he made us in a way that we die not half of our longings having been fulfilled? That sounds pretty sadistic to me. Chas v'shalom. God is so good. God loves us so much. No. God is making it that our cup can endlessly be filled. See, if you have a full cup, you can't fill it. So what if I had a cup? Like, imagine like you've got the finest wine, the greatest, the greatest wine. But you know what the problem is? My cup is only so big. What if you had a cup that could be endlessly filled with the finest wine. Wouldn't that be the greatest thing in the world? Guess what? You do. And guess what? It's you. (laughs) What could be better than that? What could be better than that? But you 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 have to have the wisdom and the Torah knowledge to do a little... I, I don't know if this is judo or jujitsu. I think it's judo, right? But I might be wrong here. Where an attacker runs at you and you use the force of the attack as leverage to throw him over your head, basically. Or throw him to the ground. In other words, the force of the attacker works for you. So this is like spiritual judo that I'm telling you right now. But this is truth what I'm telling you, which is that God puts this sense of longing within us that we never fully have everything that we want, but we're supposed to turn that desire for what it is that we want the most, which is God himself. And he gives us that desire to have that endless longing for him. That's the cup that can be endlessly filled, endlessly filled with the greatest thing in the world, which is God himself. Okay, we'll stop there. Okay, so the question is, how how can we do it? How, How do you do it? How do you do it? So, the first thing you have to know is that if, you, if there's something that you want and that this is a worthy goal, you, you don't stop working for it, right? Like today, like, like I, I think that if you haven't called someone twice, you haven't called them once, 
meaning to say there's a certain baseline effort that has to be made. And if you say, well, I emailed him, I didn't hear back from him, right? Or I, I called, but I didn't hear back. I don't know that one attempt at contact is a sheer, meaning a, a full measure of effort. There has to be a follow-up. I, I remember one time I was trying to get in touch with someone who I was working with, actually. And I must have spent, sent five or six emails that went unanswered. And we were in the middle of a project, right? And like weeks had passed at this point. I was so frustrated. And then I tried something that had I had seen done to me, by the way, <laughs> which is I put in the subject headline, resending in caps, and then whatever the, the, the rest of the subject heading was. And I heard back right away. So that's just one, one bit of, one tip. You know, people are so overwhelmed, and sometimes things genuinely fall between the cracks. You know, you don't assume that you're being ignored. You know, that's, um, that's a mistake. Sometimes just people have to be contacted in, in multiple ways. I'll tell you something. I'll, I'll give you one, one story, and this is kind of a heartbreaking story, but it's, it's got a kind of a sweet part to it, even though it's a sad story. Anyway, my, my wife was very friendly with um, someone who she grew up with, and, and she, you know, Rahmana Litzlan, we should know from it, lost, lost a child. And my wife contacted her, maybe, I don't know, tried calling her, tried emailing her, maybe half a dozen or more times, and, and didn't hear back. And, and wouldn't stop, wouldn't stop trying to get into contact. And, and, and continue to try to get into contact. And finally, the person responded. And we said that we were going to be where they live um, in that area. And the person said, uh, okay, well, um, why don't you come over for dinner? Right? So we went over for dinner. And, you know, what, what, what do you expect? It was, it was sad, but it was nice to be together and everything like this. But here's the reason why I'm telling you this story. The person hadn't left the house since this tragedy had occurred. And because she felt like, oh, my friend is coming over, how can I not make her dinner? She left the house in order to go shopping for dinner. And then, and then she felt like, well, you know something, I'm, I'm already leaving the house and my friend is coming over and I haven't seen her for a while, I'm going to get my hair done. Right, which, which, which then she felt better about herself and then felt like, okay, now I can go out again if I want to go out again and things like that. And, and so, so many things happened, positive things. And none of those things would have happened if my wife hadn't continued to essentially insist on, on being in touch. So you never know, like, obviously that's an extreme case. That's an extreme case, I understand that. But, but on an everyday level, you don't know what, what people are involved in and what people are going through and things like this. 
And sometimes, you know, two, three, four times even, depending, you know. You just have to put your, your honor, your covet aside. Mm-hmm. And, and you say, okay, you know, whatever it is. You know, and then obviously, you don't want to make a pest out of yourself. You know, if, if you don't really know the person, then, okay, maybe, maybe that, they are sending you a message. That's possible too, you know. But I think it, you need to, each of us needs to actually make more than one attempt in order to, to do that. Um, so what I'm saying is, is that if a person has a goal, you should be fairly relentless in pursuit of your goal. But, but if it doesn't work out, or if it's long term, you know what I'm saying? Then you have to also say to yourself, well, you know something? You see, here's the question. And now we're getting deeper again. The question is, what makes you complete? And if the answer to what makes you complete is something that you have no control over, then you're really treading on thin ice and dangerous ground. Because if what makes you complete is, you know, like, fill in the blank. My, my business gets on the stock exchange. My movie gets made. My book gets published. My, wh- whatever it is, something that's in the hands of other people. If that's what makes you complete, then it's very dangerous. Because essentially what you're doing is handing over your soul to foreign agents. And why would you do that? Why would you take the most precious thing about yourself and put it in other people's control who don't know you and don't care about you? And why? Why would you do that? So the first thing that I think a person has to really drill down deep and say, what makes me complete? And I'll tell you, I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to give you, and forgive me if this sounds arrogant, I apologize, but I believe this is the right answer. Like, you're going, to say, you're going to tell me what makes me complete? How dare you, right? Okay, so now that I've yelled at myself on your behalf, I'm now going to stick to my guns and tell you the answer. God makes you complete. God makes you complete. You say, well, wait a second. I don't have a relationship with God. Get a relationship with God. <laughs> Because if you try to get a relationship with God, you know what's going to happen? The first thing you're going to find out? You already have a relationship with God. (laughs) See, because here's the thing that people, even well-intentioned people, get confused by. Here's what people think. They go like this. I'm going to believe in God. I'm believing in God so much right now. And they, they think that they're manufacturing God's existence through their belief. But guess what? You believe in him. You don't believe in him. He created the world and he created you and he's keeping you alive this moment, whether you believe in him or not. So you already have a relationship with him. So so I understand that that might be like a little bit way out for some people to hear. But but I'm 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 going like you know, I'm I'm just turning to the last page of the book right now. You know what I mean? I'm just giving you like <laughs> like I remember I saw a psychologist years ago. I thought I wanted to get married, and I thought you know what? 
I'm not married. Maybe I need to go to a psychologist. So I went to a psychologist in the old city, uh, David Zeller, Rabbi Zeller. If you, Oliver Shalom, you should rest in peace. A, a great man, a great man. And we had a few sessions in the old city. We'd sit in the Rova. I'd buy two cans of mango juice. I'd give him one. I'd drink one. And because I was only in, in the... Uh, you know, in Israel for just a, a like a few days, really, a few weeks or whatever it is, we, we had a, a few sessions and, and he said to me, no psychologist is supposed to do this, but I'm just going to tell you everything that's wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> really, you're supposed to, we're supposed to have sessions and sessions and then you figure it out on your own. And that's the proper way. My father was a psychologist. I know that's the proper way to do it. But he said, you know, we have a limited amount of time. Let me just <laughs> tell you what's wrong with him. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing right now. I'm just skipping to the end right now. You know what completes you? God completes you. I'm just skipping to the end right now. Because we, you know, who knows if we'll ever be together again. <laughs> I don't know. Right? You know? So, so when you have that, you've won already. You've won already. That's, that's the amazing thing, because, because that's the highest and the deepest. Imagine what it is if you have God. You're never alone. You're never alone. You're never bored. You never feel useless. You are not engulfed by this plague which is infecting the entire world right now, which is meaninglessness. You have vaccinated yourself against meaninglessness. Everything counts, even when you're alone in your house. What you're doing counts and is important and matters. So, so how do you do it? How do you do it? That's, that's, that's how you do it. You, you realize that, that, that you've got a best, 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 best friend in the entire world, and that's God. Who, whoever loves you, and I hope that everyone has people in their life who love them, but no one loves you more than God. No one, no one can love you more than God. And, and if we can get that relationship right, or if we can at least invest in that relationship, then we win. Okay. 